Well, welcome everybody to volume five of the Dropping Keys podcast. Yes, volume five of conversations with real people living real lives and to glean their insights and keys to life, leadership, love, and whatever else we get into. I'm Joel Morgan, your host, and I'm the head of Key Exploration. Well, why the name Dropping Keys? In a few moments, you'll hear me read a poem by Hafez, who was a 14th century mystic and poet, and that is the inspiration for this podcast. Why me? I'm a writer, I'm a coach, an inspirational speaker, and I'm a curator of conversations about life, leadership, and love to help people move forward. I'm also a seeker of keys to help myself and others live lives of meaning and purpose. And why do I say real people and real life? Well, I'm not attracted to the quote-unquote superstars of our time anymore. I've listened to all those podcasts with all those names and all of those people, and, and to be honest, I've really heard enough from them. I wanted to hear from people who are in the arena, so to say, giving their heart and their soul to work, family, community, those who don't get the big headlines or have their praises sung from on high, I didn't hear those voices out there, and I wanted to bring them to you. And really, selfishly, I wanted an excuse to talk to some amazing people and to ask great questions and to plumb the depth of what gives others life and releases them from the cages in which they find themselves. And so today we're, we're in for another treat. My Dropping Keys co-conspirator is Ashley Hawkins. Ashley is the co-founder and the executive director of Studio 23, which is located in Richmond, Virginia. Studio 23, according to her bio, is her ultimate creative expression, balancing her passions for community building, dreaming big, big and art making. You can already see why I might have invited her to be on the podcast with me. Not only does she have a BFA in printmaking and painting, but she has a master's in public administration with a concentration in nonprofit management. So I can't wait to hear a little bit about how those two brains come together in this amazing woman. She believes deeply in the power of art to elevate voices, to agitate for change and connect communities. She and her partner have two young kids and a bulldog named Piggy. Ashley, I'm really glad that you're uh, here today for volume five. And what I want to do is I want to begin where we always begin is just to read Dropping Keys and to just give you an opportunity to give you an opportunity to just respond with whatever, whatever the first thing or first things are that come to mind. So here we go. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. Yeah, I um, thinking of this, I, I was really touched when you initially sent it to me, and I it resonates with me in this organization building way very much. So in that, um, you know, we've really worked for going on 10 years now and, and a trusting kind of open environment and really building a shared community that is based upon, you know, obviously shared resources of the studio, but also individual and community connection and, trusting people to share a space 24 hours a day and um, and 
how that culture of trust has really blossomed and taken off um, in a deep way rather than the opposite sort of organizational track, which would have been not to trust, to lock things up, to limit access. Um, so this like dropping keys and opening doors um, really resonates with me in terms of what we're hoping to achieve as an organization as we move forward and what's already come um, from giving people the freedom and trust to work the way that they want to, when they want to, with resources that, um, you know, if you were locking them up, uh, would really be hugely limiting. So I think that's that's where my brain first went um, in terms of how how I interpreted the poem and what um, what it brought to mind in our current work and especially during a time when, you know, with this COVID pandemic that there's so much um, cage building and um, policing, um, both by an actual police force, and, but also of your neighbors and your friends and their judgments and their lifestyle choices and if they're masked or if they're not. Um, and I love this idea of opening the cages and not um, not building them for everyone around you. Yeah, that's, um, I just want to sit with that for a minute. Because I, I hadn't thought when we'd talked before about Studio 2-3 and, and the model of just, of, of trusting people that these artists could be in and out of the space whenever it is that they work. That's, I mean, what a, what a fantastic um, permission giving environment. And I hadn't, I hadn't connected that. And thank you for connecting that for me. That's, that's really beautiful. So what, what led you to that kind of open door, um, open, you know, well, I'm sure there are keys, but, but, you know, everybody having keys to be able to get in or whatever, however it works. What led you to that sort of idea? I think when we first started, um, it was out of true necessity, you know, as, as you mentioned in my intro, I, I had finished school in painting and printmaking and, um, the printmaking side is what I fell in love with. And it was because of the ability to make multiple images, to disseminate information, to, um, tactilely, uh, interact with these old presses and crazy techniques and, um, and that it was in a shared environment. You weren't the lone genius making your large painting in a, an empty room. You were, um, by necessity sharing space and resources and the community that came of that, um, really gave me life and inspired me. And I knew that's something I didn't want to lose. Um, and when we graduated, there was nowhere like Studio 2-3, you know, it just, it simply didn't exist. Um, and so we started, you know, very, very soon out of um, undergrad and shared a little tiny room and a printing press and um, kept that community going. And I think that that initial ethos of valuing community, valuing shared space and really trusting and believing in one another has continued over the, you know, the past decade. Yeah, so so as an artist, I'm going to go maybe back a little bit actually before Studio 2. So as an artist, what kind of what kind of cages do you do you find yourself in 
like as you're as you were developing your art and figuring out, well, where am I going? Oh, it's it sort of feels like it's more painting and printmaking. It's not drawing or it's not this I mean, as the sort of the main mode of your output, perhaps. What where what what cages did you ever find yourself in there? And then what released you from those as as you were finding your voice as an artist? You know, I think painting was a cage for me and a cage of um both technical inability <laughs> um, and um, fear, you know, because it was this one precious thing that you were making, this one painting, and if you screwed it up, you know, then all of that was for naught, and it just was not not the way that my brain works and not the way that I make images. Um, so printmaking opened that cage for me where I could make images that, there were many of them. I could reinterpret one and draw back into a metal plate or erase something from a lithostone or, you know, change the screen if the initial image didn't work. You know, so it, it that felt very freeing to me. Um, and then I was able to make imagery without that fear of ruining the thing or of it being bad and being judged in some way. Yeah. So how, so how did that come about? Like how did, how did this, the shift from painting to printmaking, was that just in, in your education or, or how did that, how did that shift begin to happen for you? Yeah, it was, it was actually um, fairly late. I took my first printmaking class. I, I want to say it was my junior year. Um, and I had been kind of waffling as to if I wanted to even continue in studying art, you know, cause I had, I was frustrated and <clears throat> I had gotten to a point with painting where I was just like, Ugh, I didn't feel good about the work I was making. I felt, um, you know, I was undermining myself. And then I was also, um, thinking, well, maybe I want to go to veterinary school instead. Um, which I tested out by working at a veterinary clinic and I did not want to do that. Um, but <laughs> I found myself not well equipped for that in any way. Um, but yeah, so I, I took a printmaking class and it was basically like an introductory, like a techniques overview and I fell in love and that's basically all I took from there on out. And then in any other sort of topics class I was able to customize, I always worked in print um, and it, it became this sort of aha moment. And I think for me, I do not kid myself that I am a particularly gifted artist. Um, I think in my very soul, I am an artist um, and it's part of my identity, but the product that I make is not that important to me anymore in a lot of ways. Like it's, and I think it's because that creative skill and that need to make um, and to solve problems artistically has now really become my job as the person who runs this organization. And it, and I still get to make art, you know, so it's, it's a kind of a dual creative practice. Um, but, you know, it all kind of rooted back into both the technique of printmaking and then just the ethos and the community that has always surrounded it. Yeah, so I, it's really fascinating. That you said, you know, I was undermining myself. Uh, so much of the time when I, when I, re when I read this poem, I sometimes think about that it's outside people that are making these cages and putting us in, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm black, I'm white, I'm whatever. Um, but I think more often it seems like anyway, and, and it feels like that's what you were saying. Like we create these cages for ourselves, right? Like 
I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm never going to be a painter. Well, well, you are a painter. It's just, maybe you're not whatever. It, it's just, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing that we do to ourselves, I think. Um, and so what about, so, so I love this, the idea that then you come out of school and in a sense, there isn't the kind of freedom that you had before. So in a sense, there is this sort of cage. Well, oh, well, how do we, how do we unlock something that doesn't even exist? Like how do we unlock and how do we, and how do we create them? So will you share a little bit about how that, how the create your creative process there and like, did it just happen or whatever? Um, go ahead. If you would share a little bit about that. Yeah. So we started, um, I want to say, Oh, maybe a few months out of undergrad and, um, it was four women. So myself and three others, um, who, we remain friends to this day with my best friend actually, um, who has gone on to a different career. Um, but we, um, we started in a tiny shared space and we knew what a print shop looked like. Right. So we knew the elements that we wanted to have and we had our own personal sort of favorite techniques. You know, I was an etcher primarily in school, um, which is enormously time consuming, um, beautiful, its own beast in a, and its own beauty, you know, and it's, um, so that's, you know, where we started our focus. Um, and you know, we borrowed presses and we all worked restaurant jobs and split our rent, um, so that we could come to the studio after work and, or before. Um, and you know, we built it a little bit at a time. We had no capital, no resources beyond what we were paying. Um, but it made it, it was real and it made the like, restaurant job bearable, you know, that this was the bigger picture. And at the beginning, I remember telling people what we were doing and that it was important and that it was critical for Richmond. Um, and a big part of our, our reason for doing this was that people were graduating and then leaving, you know, and because they didn't have the resources to stay. Um, and I was like, you know, damn it, like the city could really, you know, we're staking our reputation on this, on VCU's, you know, art program. But then when you get out, like your options are so limited. Um, and so we were determined to create more options and, and kind of keep people from that funnel from Richmond to New York or Richmond to, you know, the West Coast. Um, and so I think that was, you know, the labor of love for a number of years. And, um, and we grew steadily, you know, it was that if you build it, they will come, I guess, um, because we knew there were other people like us. So our membership grew very consistently and we expanded spaces multiple times. Um, but through that, you know, the only time I've ever closed the doors to our members um, was when we had to shut down due, the, due to the pandemic, you know, and it was this moment of like, wow, you know, what we've built here and the people that have helped build it and that are, you know, living, breathing it every day. Um, they need this place. And it was a real, you know, awakening for me that, you know, this little scrappy thing that we started was a big deal for a hundred plus people. Um, and all started from just saying, Hey, we need a place to work and we want to stay together and we want to stay in our hometown that we love. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the, 10 years into doing that, I think most of, we still know what a print shop looks like. It's much larger. There's a big diversity of equipment that we didn't have. I just stepped in to do the podcast after 
figuring out a new letterpress setup, which we, you know, certainly didn't have 10 years ago. And we're reconfiguring and moving heavy objects like Legos, 10 years still running. I thought <laughs> at one point we would stop doing that, but nope, I've moved several two-ton printing presses with just three other people and a hope and a dream. Um, but yeah, I think the elements of it have stayed the same, right? It's the the love of the technique of the making of the process, the voice that you want to amplify to share the community, both in which inside of the studio and that these projects are supporting. Um, and then the actual physical space and, you know, technology and resources themselves. So that recipe has remained consistent. It's just grown and we throw a sprinkle of new technology in here and there and open the doors to more and more folks each year. Yeah. Well, and the entire endeavor, just as you're talking about it, is built on community. It's built on relationships. So um, what, about, what about keys? What about maybe some keys or insights on, on building those relationships and building community? What, what kind of things have you learned or what kind of things, what kind of ways of thinking or cages did you find yourself in and thinking about relationships or, or community that now that have, been, that have been changed because you found some different ways of doing things? Yeah, I think um, when we first started out, there's always a, um, when you're organization building, I think in some ways there's always a question of legitimacy. And so when you're the the little guys, you know, just showing up and being present and, you know, printing at community events or hosting um, other nonprofit groups in the space to do workshops, um, those relationships are slow to build, um, but super important and um there's a line I love um, and I'm forgetting, I think it's an emergent strategy, uh, a book that I really love, but there's um, a line about moving at the speed of relationships. Um, and I think that's fundamental um, that you show up, you invest of yourself, you know, as a, a person or as an organization um, and do that work of building relationships um, and do it with intention um, you know, I think we are certainly a an arts organization with an ethos and with a political stance um, <laughs> that um, we're not neutral. And the way that we, I think, conceive of that or that I conceive of that is that we select our relationships and our partners and we're able to use this organization and the resources that we have and our skills as artists to collaborate and to uplift, you know, the work of others who are doing really important things. Um, and it happens to be through art making, which I think is this vehicle of communication that is always important, has always mattered. It's, you know, a key facet of just being a human being is that we make art and love art and consume it and we need it for our souls. Um, but I do think that, you know, we've been very intentional over the years as to who, we develop deep and meaningful relationships with in terms of organizations and then the relationships that happen as a byproduct of sharing space, you know, are really, we see people launching collaborative businesses together. We've, you know, hosted a flag making company for, Oh God, since 2012. Um, and they, um, after like the devastation in Puerto Rico, they collaborated with another artist in the space and made, 
a, a flag that was literally this 50 feet square um, that they printed in our studio and it said, you know, Puerto Rico is dying and was actually taken to DC, you know, to march on the Capitol and traveled throughout the country. Um, and that was the people who met in the space sharing their passions and their, their work on behalf of their communities through an art making medium that would possibly not have happened, you know, if the space and the relationships hadn't happened, you know, through sharing a room, you know, sharing a class, sharing a technique together. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful stuff. When you open up the the possibility of those things like that. That's great. Well, so I'm sort of, I'm kind of hearing a, a bit about it. So as an artist and then, and then I'm sure out of some necessity or some feeling of necessity, you, you pursued a master's in public administration, nonprofit management and, and earned that. And so tell me a little bit how, about how, how you see how those, how, how you were able to bring those two things together. Like what, what helps you think with both of those I don't want to say they're different mindsets, but definitely public administration feels a little bit in general, a little more dry than, well, I'm an artist. So or at least the people from the outside, I think. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I get grad school. I decided um, fairly soon after undergrad. I mean, we'd started this place, um, decided that we needed to pursue nonprofit status um, and knew that that wasn't just like, if you get the status, then the money flows in and everything's easy. And um, I knew that we would be running a business, a nonprofit business, but a business nonetheless. Um, and I was definitely the person who wanted to study that element. You know, I, I took a couple of classes and then, you know, decided, okay, I'm in the program. I'm, I'm focusing here. Um, and it was actually really great. I was able to customize most of my work during the program to this organization, you know, so I was able to create a manual for our board of directors to do financial planning, to do, you know, to kind of deep dive on accounting in a way that I would, did not get in art school um, at all. Um, but I do think the mind of an artist, like, as an artist, you're problem solving. I think in a lot of ways you are, you might be creating the problems and then solving them yourself, but they, um, you're constantly making, evaluating, remaking, course correcting, tweaking, totally shifting. And that's, I think how you can be successful in business as well. So I, um, and I hear it a lot that the, you know, the artists and the business brain are, divergent. Um, but I honestly think that artists who have that inclination and have that desire bring so much to, you know, the nonprofit administration world, but also, you know, to for-profit institutions. Like there's, there's a reason that we're bringing artists into, you know, corporate environments and doing team building and ideation um, because that, that iterative process of art making and critique and constant sort of evolution, I think is, necessary for an organization. Um, and I think it can be, uh, it can be frustrating too, in that as an artist, you're like, I don't know that you're going for perfection at all, but that it's inherent to tweak and change. So I go back to the drawing board over and over and over again here, you know, if there's something that isn't working, it's not that it's 
done and set in stone and we failed, it's, it's, well, why didn't it work? What can we fix? You know, if we put the job descriptions in these five buckets and really it's not making sense for you to do that. And instead you should do this, you know, like there's a, a constant willingness. I think that is a strength of mine, a willingness to revisit, to change, to adapt, um, and to be flexible and to try to be, you know, as creative as possible in solving problems in a way that is, um, aligned with our mission and strategic. Um, so I love that I was able to pursue that program and the things that I got from it. And then on the flip side, I've learned pretty much everything I know on the job, you know, and having an artist brain that's doing that kind of um, problem solving and creative solution making and um, has been helpful throughout. But, you know, I, I know more about QuickBooks and bank reconciliations than I ever would have thought 10 years ago um, for better or for worse. But I, I love, you know, as I think about the recipe of things, like you've got to have a lot of those abilities to run a business and to be flexible and adaptive and then to know what you lack and to make sure that you're able to fill those, those gaps in with people who have skills that you don't, you know? So I think it's been, it's been an interesting ride, but I, the nonprofit management angle was theoretically fascinating to me um and then in practice pretty fascinating and then as an industry it's it's fraught um so there's a lot of uh challenges that the entire field faces and um yeah and i i grapple with that to some degree because in all honesty the like nonprofit world exists because our system as a nation doesn't function right <laughs> you know so this um this entire field is you know the third sector saying it's not government and it's not for profit um so we're stepping in to fill the gaps that our government or our for-profit industries either aren't interested or aren't willing um to fill so it's a it's a strange um it's a strange field to be in when you're like wow we exist because of deficits but we are bringing so much to our communities and such an asset to our cultural life yeah. Well, and I've, I've often, I've been nonprofit world, you know, pretty much my whole career as well. And at least on one particular side of it. And I'd never really thought about, thought about it much. And, but every endeavor has to make a profit. So it's not that you're not, I mean, because if you don't function, if you can't, don't make a profit, like if you're, if, or if you're, you know, you've got to have enough money to, to grease the wheels. So it's just, it is a fascinating thing. And I love how you describe that because that's another way I had never thought of Like we, like nonprofits exist to fill these needs that aren't out there. And, and I, I love that so much. So, and I know that, I mean, it's over 10 years, there have had to have been times when you're just like, there's no way we're going to make it something, something shifts, something changes. you lose a grant or, or that you thought you were going to have or that sort of thing. So what are, what are some of your keys for, you know, not letting yourself get locked inside that cage of just the, you know, defeatism or whatever. And for, and for keeping your perspective. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a moment to think about that, honestly. Um, you know, we, started in 2008, 2009, so we were in a recession, um, and best practices in the nonprofit field were to have a robust mix of earned revenue, right? So you 
and over and over again, you heard, wow, nonprofits should really be acting more as for profits. Like you, you know, you're running a business, et cetera, et cetera. So we came, you know, to exist during that time and, and have developed roughly 70% earned revenue um, as an arts organization. And so with the pandemic, obviously our doors being shut, we have lost a huge amount of that funding. Um, but at the same time, we, I won't say I didn't despair. I despaired for a couple of weeks and grappled and wrestled and um, thought about what it would mean if this place didn't exist. Um, and then I decided quite simply that that wasn't going to happen. Um, and we did everything we could in terms of, you know, payroll protection applications, all of the like, the fixes that we were able to apply for. And then we pivoted, you know, we were like, you know, we have these skills. Um, we have this giant space that is inherently um, a place where you can be distant from others and be safe. Um, so we turned the studio into a sewing production facility um, for masks for essential nonprofit workers. And it's, we're coming up on 8,000 masks that we've made as of this week. Um, and it's been a way to use our skills, to use our space, to continue to connect with our community and to give people a safe and meaningful way to come together um, and contribute. And so that to me is like such a direct like smack on the forehead of why artists are important in our society. Because we say yes, we say, yeah, we have these five pennies we've been rubbing together. You know, we're, we're scrappy and we're low resource and we've become accustomed to doing a lot with very little, um, partially because of the funding <laughs> available to arts organizations nationally and locally. Um, and so that was transformative. And now, you know, we've opened up more studio spaces. We're reopening slowly to our membership. We're launching a residency program with one artist at a time in collaboration with the ICA at VCU. Um, and it all was possible because we said, A, we're not going away. We're important. You know, we are essential. Um, and at a time when that word is, is very loaded. Um, and that we took all the pieces of the recipe and the puzzle and we rearranged them. And some pieces are now smaller. You know, the wedding revenue that we were getting as part of our event rentals is going to diminish rapidly. But now we have a new partnership with the ICA. We have a partnership with all of these organizations that we've given masks to that is going to outlast this scary moment. And I, I truly do believe that we're going to come out probably a year from now, you know, to be practical. Um, I think we're going to come out as a stronger organization. Like I, I, I really do. Um, and so that couple weeks of despair and then just saying, you know what? No, not going to happen. I'm digging in. Um, and thank God we have an amazing team here. You know, we have people who, are visionary and hardworking and willing to be both the mask makers and the sanitizers and the door proppers and, you know, all the, the printers and the t-shirt sewers and all of these things that um, bizarrely exist within arts organization workers because we've had to be the janitor and the plumber and the teacher and the sewer and the budgeter all at the same time because we're scrappy and we're often doing a lot with very little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in that, I, I mean, I'd love to know, I mean, as a, 
as you know, you've got a family, you know, you have, you have a husband, you've got kids, you've got, you know, and then you have all these relationships with this. You have this, this organize, this big organization that, that you're running. What do you, what are some of the keys for your life? Just to, just to sort of, to keep yourself, I don't want I hate the word balance, but integrated. How do you, how do you, how do you keep all of that integrated and not, not sort of lose yourself in the midst of all of that? I'm not great at that, honestly. <laughs> the, um, the work part of it, I think in a lot of ways, because it was my first baby um, before my human babies. Um, and, you know, my, my passion um, is consuming, you know, it's all consuming. And it's also a strange kind of, um, as the founder of an organization, it's a strange thing, you know, that you have brought this thing up from non-existence into existence and growth and hopefully flourishing. Um, and then it, it's my livelihood too, but it's also not inherently mine. You know, I, at one day I will walk away and somebody else will take my job. Um, I won't own the studio because it's not a for-profit, you know, it, it's owned by everybody in the community essentially. Um, so yeah, it's a strange sort of place to be both like, within and apart from, um, and having to reckon with, you know, sort of the future in which I am not an essential part of this organization. Um, but I also think that that's important and that's where health and growth and, and organizations that stay adaptive and responsive is knowing when I'm no longer the right person to be here and stepping away. Um, and in the meantime, you know, as, as I think through that, and then I think about how, my family and I, you know, how we all kind of work and collaborate together. Like in so many ways, I bring my kids here, you know, they've come and learned art making from the time they were very little. And Max, um, you know, wore a hard hat and ran around in one of those toddler cars while we were, you know, moving to this facility. You know, he was the first person on the floors once they were painted. My daughter, you know, I came back early from maternity leave. Um, I had one other employee that I unfortunately had to let go um, and came back at, you know, six weeks in with my daughter strapped to my body. And because this place is full, I'm going to tear up a little bit, um, <laughs> full of such love and such relationships and such a community that there were people to hold my baby while I had to go on a phone call with a donor or, you know, rock her if she cried and I had some fire to put out. Um, and so to me, that is just like, it's all connected. It's all like the life that you build and the relationships that you make are work is my love and my life and my passion. And my family is, you know, incredibly important and, you know, the loves of my life and, I just see them as, you know, all tied in this continuum together and able to exist both separately, but also like, you know, the kids are here. Max is here right now. He's called me a second ago because he figured out how to use the phone at six um, and left me. I'll tell you, it's a 24 second nonsense garbled of nothing because um, he thinks he's funny. Um, so, yeah, it's I think. I balance by not balancing and I just mix it all together and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. I love me. I love that it brought out that just that it reaches the deepest part of you. Right. That's because that's, 
uh, just, just my insight is when, when it does, then that means that life has been rich and good, you know? Um, well, so what, what, what's the most important key in your life right now? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> I think for me right now, it's huh, I'm I'm grappling with this around all the you know that we are in a pandemic. So obviously things are in a very different sort of frame of mind. But I, I think it's it's. I think it's coming back to the core of why we exist and that no matter what ups and downs, money will fly out the door, money will come in the door at the end of the day, money is not why we're here. Um, it's we're here for this community and to help art and artists thrive. Um, and when I come back to that, you know, the, the essence and the absolute, you know, reason we're here and remind myself of that, that the fear and the stress and the uncertainty take, you know, go, go to the back burner and I'm able to think about the future and able to be optimistic and able to be um, proud of this place, but also know that our community is going to come through it stronger and more connected. And yeah, so that to me, it's like just going back to the essence of the why and reminding myself of that when things get overwhelming as they often do. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that. Well, one last question and then, and then I think we'll, we'll, we're going to sort of wrap up. So the last question is if you just sort of take a step back, take a step back for a minute and you're, you're, you're going to drop a key for everybody out there. You're just gonna you're gonna try to drop something that you think would be important for people just at large. What's that what's that key that you'd like to drop? I think it's something we've been talking a lot about and really have lived over the past 10 years without maybe I at least hadn't put a, a pin on it to figure out what that is. Um, and have just with our new development director, who's a brilliant person, um, <laughs> has really helped me frame this. And it's thinking in terms of assets instead of deficits. So defining yourself by what you are and not what you are not um, and what you believe as opposed to what you don't believe or what's important rather than what you're missing. Um, and that to me, it shifts so much thinking um and i think in a field and in a time when um we're often positioned as in competition with each other you know in organizationally like there's one tiny pot of money and we're all gonna fight over it like scraps um stepping back and thinking no actually how do we support one another how do we open doors for people how do we how can we be generous as opposed to guarded um and all of that 
and what do we have to offer inherently and what can we do with it that's meaningful as opposed to dwelling upon what we lack. So I think that's really what I've been mm-hmm. trying to practice myself because I, I am not um, always successful. You know, I, I mentioned before we started recording, we just found out we didn't get a grant that we were um, almost certain we would get and another organization I know I've got it. And I was like, Oh, come on, you know? And then I stepped back and said, you know what? The door will reopen. Another door will open like, and thank goodness that they got it because they're doing incredible, important work. And it's not us versus them. It's all of us together. And if we frame it in that way as using our collective assets to better our community and our world and our lives, that we're just going to be happier and more impactful (laughs) ultimately. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be chewing on uh, this phrase and I don't know if you, if that came from somewhere or if you just made that up, this, how can we be generous, not guarded? Uh, well, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to be chewing on that one for a while uh, for sure. Yeah. I think it's something I've been thinking about a lot and also knowing that if we are all able to get there, we're all collectively going to be better and also accepting that your generosity may not come with some reciprocity either and not expecting that. And so, cause it's easy if everything's at a tit for tat or with the expectation of return that then you go back into guarded and, and resource hoarding and, and, you know, shutting yourself off from the, the opportunities that could otherwise arise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have been, you've been incredibly generous and as far as I can tell, completely unguarded in this conversation. And so I am, I'm so, I can't wait to go back and, and listen to our conversation again, because there are so many little nuggets. I took some notes, but I know I didn't capture uh, things because I was just trying to be here with us. And I, I'm, I really am in awe of, of, of what, what you shared today and just the conversation that we've had and so for everybody out there that's been listening, I hope that you've been mining uh, these keys and, and hearing them and, and maybe maybe something dropped for you. You can uh, find and learn more about Ashley at studio23.org. And that's all spelled out, studio, T-W-O-T-H-R-E-E.org. And especially on Instagram at studio23, all spelled out. T-W-O-T-H-R-E-E um, on Instagram. So definitely learn more about Studio 23. They'd love to have your support. They'd love to just have you know about them and, and what they're doing and how they're, how they're pivoting uh, during this pandemic. You can learn more about me if you want to at joelmorgan.com and then at, at joelmorgancc. That's just CC. It's not carbon copy, but that's all. You can figure out what that is later. Um, and that's on Facebook and on Instagram. And thank you so much, Ashley, for being my volume five, dropping keys, podcast, co-conspirator. I love all that stuff. It's just so fun to say. It's really fun. I am so thankful to have had this time to talk to you and to, to step back and think about life, which is rushing by very quickly. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this is what I like to leave at the very end. I want to say two things is one, may you be made whole. And may the sage drop the key to unlock the cage in which you find yourself. Until next time, everybody.